Nick Hardcastle is charisma on legs. A vibrant personality, it is no surprise that he has enjoyed success in various fields around the world. He may be immediately recognisable as Summer Bay resident Tim O'Connell in Home and Away, or as the genial host of Video Hits. His TV credits extend to extensive work as presenter on a range of shows that have included Saturday Disney and five seasons of the highly popular children's program Creature Features. No stranger to the stage, Nick has scored theatrical credits in Australia, London and Los Angeles. These include the role of Felicia in the musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert and Damien in Reuben Guthrie. All this experience led him to co-found the Australian Theatre Company, a theatrical venture that showcases Australian repertoire and harnesses the array of Australian talent working in the US, fostering a creative and meaningful cultural exchange along the way. He is presently working on a show that celebrates the legendary Hollywood costume designer, Ori Kelly. The show Ori was recently invited to launch Celebration Theatre's new works program in the city of West Hollywood. As actor, presenter, producer, recording artist, and with gigs on radio, Nick is essentially an entertainment renaissance man. Currently based in LA, he was back recently for a brief visit. And as ever, it is always a treat and a chuckle to spend some time with Nick Hardcastle. It's going so... Whatever, just talk and then we'll pick it up when it ever starts. When it starts, when it starts becoming interesting? When it becomes interesting. Yeah, is that when you're going to start picking it up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Why would I start when it's... It's going to be a long night, folks. Nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, just ease you into it. I don't, mm. want, to, I don't want to throw it's you... It's not the first time you've said that to me in this apartment. What? Oh. I've oh. got to cut that out. Thank you very much. Um, it's not my... It's not an apartment. It's the Wyndham Studios. It's the Wyndham Studios. It's very glamorous. I can feel... I can smell the showbiz. You can. Here. I mean, it's just... It's wafting off just, the walls, isn't it? Or is it? that your lemongrass humidifier? No, no, it's... Stankerub. It's Thai fusion. <laughs> it's Thai fusion. Thank you very much. <laughs> Smells like shock straps um, at the State Theatre. Anyway. This is great radio because you're creating all of those ultra senses for the listener. You're is, welcome, listeners. They, they, they can see and hear this conversation, which is, is fantastic. If only... If only, you know, I'm sacrificing a lot for this. I could be watching Game of Thrones, but... Um, I'm the only person on the planet that's never seen a whole episode of Game of Thrones. You're joking. No, I really... I think I am. I can put it to a poll to your listeners. If there's anyone else out there who hasn't seen an episode of Game of Thrones, give us a call. Well, the pro- problem is <laughs> there's no phone for them to call. That's right. Sorry. Why haven't you seen Game of Thrones? I don't know. I think I'm intimidated now by the just the vast universe that's been created by it, and and I'd have to start all over again, like from scratch. And um, I just yeah, it's a huge commitment. I don't think I can do it. And you might be disappointed. And I'm okay, the... just like with the very little television time that I get to watch. Like I'm okay, just like binge watching Shit's Creek or something like that, because it's escapism. It's fun. It's entertaining, and you know it doesn't take a lot of <laughs> attention. Well, those those series that go over several um, seasons require a huge investment of time. They do. Don't they? And, and if you haven't got that, if you're time poor... I'm very busy, as you know. But, you know, you can... Look, it's always there. I didn't go to the West Wing until a good 10 years after it finished. You are talking about the television show. Yes, yes. yes. No, I didn't go to visit Uncle Dan <laughs> in China. Um, uh, the West Wing, which was fantastic, and that was that was a treat. Yeah. And, you know, that's one I could go back to again and again. Yeah, it's great. Um, when you're presenting to camera, yes, do you use a prompter or do you learn li- learn your lines? Well, both. It depends on what the shoot is. But yeah, I've used prompter quite a lot. I certainly started out as a television host when I was doing video hits as an 18 year old boy in at Channel 10. It was all prompter. But uh, you know, I never used a prompter once while I was working at the ABC doing all of those shows. Why, why was that? Because you only knew show tunes. You didn't know popular music. Or no, I'm being facetious. You are. You're being a facetious. Um, um, so how did video hits come about? You're 18. You did that was just an audition. You know, it wasn't an audition. I was living with the receptionist at Channel 10. I had borrowed, um, I'd borrowed her car, and I'd come back to give her the keys and tell her where it was parked. And Gary Dunstan, who was the EP of Video Hits, happened to come out at that very moment. And Broman said, Gary, this is my flatmate Nick. He's just moved down to Sydney. He's an actor. Gary looked at me and said, 
oh, what are you doing right now? I said, oh, not much. He said, you got time for a coffee? And he had a bunch of scripts in his hands. We went down and had a coffee. I did a cold read of that morning's hosting links. And he said, where were you yesterday? And then he called me into the studio the next week. Wow. I suppose being an actor, he had an understanding that you could at least read and speak. Read and, and speak, And then yes. what was essential? I suppose you had a good head for television. I did at the time, yeah, apparently. I was very cute for an 18-year-old. I was cute. But you're still cute. Oh, bless your heart. No, no. Uh, um, but, um, yes, a check is fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a check. So how long did you do video hits? Not that long. I think um, I did it for about six months before I got off in my own little show with Polygram. And then... Well, another TV show? It was or... another, like, hosting gig. Right. Well, so... Oh, was it guys, on the 10 we, network? Or? No, it wasn't. And in fact, it wasn't on any network. Do you remember when you used to get VHS videos and there were previews at the beginning and the end? Well, what they did at Polygram Filmed Entertainment was they made a show and they used Polygram music, Polygram film titles, and then I did interviews and things like that. And they turned the front into like a teaser for the show that would come after the feature. And um, it didn't last very long. I think I did about six or eight episodes but then it was okay I got cast in Home and Away while I was doing that and I was off well it seems pretty did, did, was it on before the video piracy ad or after it no it was sort of built in because piracy ad was sort of built in fast forward through it and then not realise oh there goes Nick oh there goes here Nick here comes Xanadu in his like shiny hound dog um, you know coloured shirt with his blonde hair it was a yeah I'm hoping a lot of people fast forwarded through it's not necessarily one of those you know, highlights of my creative legacy. I had a um, gig. But I'm very grateful for it, don't get me wrong. Of course, we're grateful for, mm. all, for all gigs. I had a gig uh, presenting for Toyota. Oh, you did? Training videos. Right. Which was hysterical. I needed a prompter. Right. I, ha- I didn't know a steering wheel from a spare wheel. No. So it was nice Or to, a spare tyre. Or a spare tyre. <laughs> uh, yes, but then the joke doesn't work. No, right. Okay, sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, but you obviously knew about Spare popular, mu- no, popular music and, and popular culture. Yeah, I still do. I think I'm actually stuck in... I hang out with like lots of kids in LA and, and, and Hollywood and I'm... Oh, they're on to me. They're on to the, the, the video piracy. <laughs> the video piracy. Did you hear that siren? Yeah. Um, I hang out with a lot of kids in LA and Hollywood and some of them I'm actually coaching as they're either like influencers or you know, campaigners for change or new broadcasters and things like that. And I get them out and coach them. In, um, in, in media. In television hosting, yep, in right. content creation, whatever, in, in messaging, various things. And um, when we talk about popular music, I realise that I am, I'm stuck in a, a kind of era. You know, I, I listen, I, I don't drive a car anymore, which is very unusual for someone who lives in LA, but I live... On Hollywood Boulevard, I can walk anywhere, I can get Uber, it's so cheap, it's kind of like having a, a driver, and why wouldn't you? I can sit there and not get, you know, frustrated by the LA traffic. You know, I can read, I can close my eyes, I can meditate, I can do yoga. <laughs> in an Uber? Well, you know, why not? I mean, that's what we all do. We all just eat kale and meditate and do yoga in, in, in the back of an Uber in LA. In LA, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do. I feel a little bit out of touch with pop music these days. Although a lot of the kids are, you know, a lot of 80s repertoire is certainly coming back again. I mean, you, you hear these kids and they're singing a song that you recognise from when you were at high school. Sure, but even, I mean, the, the 90s are very nostalgic as well. Like, you're looking at, I mean, the Spice Girls are making another comeback. I think they're going to be going into, into a residency in Las Vegas and all the, you know, the 20-somethings now are like, oh my God, it's my childhood, it's amazing. Wow, God. I remember I went to... Yes, there's that audience there. Well, I guess it's like, you know, when we were kids and, um, well, you were a kid a little bit younger than I was, but, you know, (coughs) Sinatra and Sammy Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. How old do you think I am? No, 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 no. I'm saying when we were kids... (laughs) There, Sinatra and Sammy Davis and Dean Martin did a big, dead. big no, they did a big <laughs> tour of the world in which our parents went to see them. My parents went to see them because they were they were the Spice Girls of the day. Yes, do you really get what were. I'm trying to say? I do get what you're trying to say. I just need to like let your listeners know I was not a child when that happened. I was not born. Right, and I need to dry my microphone now. So yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. hot tea everywhere. Hot tea. What sort of kid were you? Were you an extrovert? Ooh, I am an extroverted introvert by nature. I 
But that is a possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm very gregarious. I've always sort of um, been... I've always spoken to strangers, much to my detriment at times, but I always talk to strangers. Um, I'm happy being, you know, uh, a focus of attention, but I'm equally happy taking a back seat and sitting back. Why do you talk to strangers? I mean, that's something that really... I'm quite fearful of. I mean, mm. but you have the gift of the gab. You can talk to... So do you. Don't uh, be silly. Uh, you can talk to a chair and have it answer back. In fact, I have. Let, yeah. Many times. Let's um, Anyone who's been to one of my parties in LA... No, <laughs> You obviously just love conversation and, and, and meeting people. I do. I'm just a curious person by nature, I think. And I'm... Um, I, I do. I... I I'll always smile at someone when they're walking past. I, I probably there's probably a lot of people out there who think I'm a widow, and that's okay. I mean, for every person that thinks you're a widow, maybe one or two might actually smile back, and you never know, have some kind of connection or engagement. Yeah, so you're a widow with a good head. Thank you so much. There you go. And yeah, and a good. and a heart somewhere down. That's right. In there somewhere. And a check is fine. <laughs> um, but as a child, um, who were your heroes growing up? Were they film stars? Were they I came, okay, so when I was a little, very little child, um, I was born in Newcastle. We moved to Goulburn in New South Wales for a few years because my both of my parents' families live there. And that was actually the best of times, the worst of times. I mean, I have very, very dark and troubling sort of memories about that place, but I also obviously have some very happy um, memories too. Um, and in those days, I was very into sport, actually. I was really into rugby league like wow. the Parramatta Eels were my heroes when I was living there right. um, I always put on shows my sister was responsible for that though she would force me to um, you know to get up and put on plays and we did radio plays and we made up our own songs and this is in the living room yeah or yeah. wherever the in the shed. front yard we'd do it you know uh, but I really think that I grew up in Sawtell, New South Wales which is a small coastal town near Coffs Harbour where we moved to when I was about 8 years old and I was I'd moved up there and it took me a little while to adjust. Um, I, that's when I found out that I was deaf. I was quite disruptive up the back of the class. And when the teacher sort of figured out, sent me away and I had a hearing test and they figured out that I was deaf in my right ear, they put me at the front of the classroom, on the right-hand side, and I went from 13th to 1st in, our, in my class. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. But you well, why would anyone know that? Mm. Um, has that been much of a hindrance or...? Um, I can blame my, my shaky pitch sometimes. <laughs> um, yes and no, you just get used to it, don't you? A lot is your light and you sort of learn to... So, so what percentage of, of hearing? I have, uh, I have just less than 30% of my low-frequency hearing and no high-frequency hearing in my um, right ear. My left ear is not bad, so it's, um, it sort of balances things out. And if I'm singing live, I can, if I have the right sort of um, fold-back or if I, you know... If, the instruments alive and they're around me in a way that I can hear okay I'm good but recording in the studio has been problematic sometimes was a, a hearing aid ever an option or well not really because most hearing aids and I'm not an expert if there's an ENT out there listening who thinks they have a better solution for me please give me a call um, most hearing aids amplify what you can already hear that's yours that's I know that's mine that wasn't Nick it was me mm. I didn't turn his grinder is going berserk. Yeah, it's, it's just not, notification after notification. Not, it's not Tinder. <laughs> it's not. It's the laptop. Thank okay, you. It's all fixed sure. now. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yes, hearing aids. Oh, yeah, hearing aids. So no. Um. So understanding that they essentially amplify what you can already hear. It was no not an option. I did go and test out a cranial implant, which was amazing. But then I left the country. I was on a waiting list for one here and. Sydney, but um, yeah, I left the country and I've been away for 11 years and I haven't actually pursued it. So it's probably something that I should hmm. look into more. But at the time, like it was quite crude and you had to have like a little box on the outside of your head. And my, my vanity got the better of me yep, yep, at sure. that point. Especially uh, uh, um, being a media personality and yeah. on camera and all that sort of thing. So did you do community theatre? I mean, you said you were doing the In Coffs shows. Harbour, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did all the Estedfords up there and did lots of plays all the way going through school. And I was a child model, so I did lots of editorial and a few commercials. And, um, yeah, and did like, I had a local radio show by the time I was 13. And uh, So you obviously had a very supportive family who My family you. had no idea what to do except just no. to say, okay, 
Um, so they were supportive in so far as they, they never held me back. But my mum was working in the local pharmacy. She's actually a t- really talented makeup artist and beauty therapist, but, you know, worked in the pharmacy and the, in the beauty rooms there. My dad was um, um, a psychiatric nurse who sort of went on and did more study and became a, a registrar and a psychiatric consultant, and he still, he still works. But nowhere in our family was there any sort of showbiz careers. There had been people who had various talents. I mean, but I, I was a bit of an anomaly. There, nobody else had ever, you know, pursued these interests, um, certainly outside of just something at school or... So what was the radio show? Was it with a, a local station? Yeah, it was um, Coffs Harbour's 2CHY. And, um, and they let a 13-year-old have it a was a, it, it stands for Coffs Harbour Youth. Oh, okay. Right. So that 13 was the, the youngest. You had, to, you had to, like, do your training and then you had to sort of essentially audition and I got the Friday Night Request show, which was... And I got into a little bit of trouble. I, you know, I pushed the boundaries a little bit for, <laughs> for a 13-year-old. But... Um, it was a it was an amazing experience, and one of the great things about growing up in an area like that is, even though you might not have as many resources, it's easier to get access to them. And you know, your mum knows Barry, who cleans the local television station, who knows Mick, who you know yep. runs. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's a lot easier to. And and I was very fortunate because um, I got I, I I got little TV jobs, and I got um, the opportunity to work with. The local theatre company, and I got opportunities to, to do all sorts of things that might have been a lot harder actually for kids to get access to in the big city. How does a request show work? I mean, I know that people ring up and say they want to listen to Dancing Queen. Yeah. But do you have to then go Nobody to the library ever rang and up find? And said, yeah. So in those days, we were still playing them on forty five. Right. And all the ad spots were on carts. So I would the way that I would do it is I would have a playlist that I got to, to choose and program. And I'd have like my first three or four songs all ready to go. And I've got my two, you know, <laughs> decks there with the vinyls ready to go for the next songs. And then the phone's ringing. And while the songs are playing, I'm like, yep, yep, I can do that because I've got a catalogue. And then I'd go and have to, in those days, they were catalogued by number in a library. And I'd have someone come just pull those numbers. And I guess out they, of the they would be songs that were already on the top. 100 or something so. they were mostly they were there were songs from our existing like from the, the current playlist so it was it wasn't difficult right um, but certainly not ha- like you can just search on a computer now and press go right we had to actually find the vinyl and and people actually phoned up yeah people did it, it wasn't you just reading out saying look oh fanny dusseldorf wants to listen to no but i did use it sometimes as an opportunity to get back at kids from school by saying certain messages that were from someone else you know all oh, right um like love song dedications. Love song but. dedications or, yeah, um, you know, am I ever going to see your face again by the angels? <laughs> Things like that. Lots of subtext. Yes, subtext. So you host lots of, uh, you present on TV, you know, video hits, Saturday Disney, um, work for Nickelodeon, Creature Features, which was a high rating series for, what, six seasons? Yeah. I, I only did the first five. Um, but yeah, that's, God, I did a lot of kids TV in the sort of, in the 2000s, that was all that stuff. Um, what was Creature Features? Creature Features was a pets and animal show right. that was on the ABC in the afternoons. So did you just throw to reporters or were you out there no, it was me playing and with animals? It was me and I don't know if you remember a show when you were um, a child <laughs> called The Ferals. <laughs> no, I that don't. Had, um, I was probably watching The Goodies. Yeah. yeah. So The Ferals um, were these puppets um, and they had... And there were some humans in it too, Miguel Ayesa among them. And um, so it was me and Madigliana the cat, which was one of these ferals puppets. And we would host links in various places all around the country. We'd go to zoos and animal sanctuaries and we'd meet celebrities and their pets. We'd go out on, you know, open ranges and farms and various things. And it was a really wacky, fun, irreverent kid show. And um, it... It's the highest rating show in its spot for, well, at least certainly while I was hosting it. And um, were there any um, curly moments? You know, a wombat attacked you, or you know what I bit you? I I genuinely love animals, and I actually do have uh, a real genuine affinity. Like they, I'm a bit of an animal whisperer. 
I'm a bit of an animal whisperer, Peter. Really? Yes. I was going to say something about being a snake charmer. <laughs> um, so I never really had any, any like, I, I rolled around with the, the dingoes. I've swum with sharks and stingrays and held every reptile you can think of. The only hairy moment that I really remember was when we were up in the Northern Territory and the arachnid spe- um the spider expert. Yeah, arachnid. <laughs> he, we were going to do this whole section on spiders and he brought out a bird eating spider. And I always would hold the animals and whatever. And so they came out and this spider was the size of a dinner plate. Really? Yeah. yeah. And they grabbed this spider and they said, it's very nice. Are you fine to hold it? And I went, okay, I guess so. Anyway, they put the spider on my hand, and it's like this. And then I start to do the piece to camera where I'm like, don't try this at home. This is a bird. And it rears up on my hand and goes, and I just chucked it. I threw it. And I go, it eats fucking birds. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just lost my shit at that point. And I'm like, this is, that's not okay. We, we can't be doing that. <laughs> On children's television. No. That's the only time I ever lost my shit. Did over the spider the survive? Yeah, I mean, obviously the the spider keeper, well w- l- he was not happy right. because it well, obviously the spider panicked and freaked out, so he had to chase the spider and get it back. But what but is this supposed to if something bites you? Your immediate reaction is I mean, for fuck's to... sake. Sorry, I shouldn't be swearing. I'm swearing. No, that's See, right. it, no, this is have... what it elicits in me. We this... have a very open-minded audience. Thank you, audience. Thank you for yeah. um, indulging me as I recount this trauma. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sorry to bring that up. <laughs> so what are the qualities which a good presenter needs? I mean, you've, you've done it for quite a few years now. I think that's you... changed. I think it's changed a lot, actually. Um, part of what made me a good presenter was that I was able to do sort of anything. And I went from music shows to kids shows to lifestyle shows, entertainment shows, gardening. I did a bit of everything. I had an online interactive show. I did this other show called Nick Gets the Knack where I'd go out and learn someone's profession in a day, which was all very silly and fun. So I had the ability to sort of do kind of anything. I was a very appropriate hosty sort of host. So I could, I could do the whole thing. I always had my own sort of style, but what sort of, changed in that cultural landscape now with hosts is that people actually prefer people who are either sort of a, a little more niche or they're experts in their particular field um, or they have very clear sort of personal brands that's the buzzword we use for hosting they have very clear personal brands so you know we go to Peter for that because he's the that guy yeah, yeah and so that that I think has changed and because anyone can be a broadcaster now you know, you can be... You can create your own podcast. Yeah, you can be... You See, you're doing... You just The proof uh, is in just, the pudding. Anyone can be a broadcaster now, so you can have your podcast, your video... Your, your blog. You know, on your, your YouTube, your blog, Instagram, your Instagram TV, mm. your Facebook Live, you know, you name it. Everyone has that ability. What makes you cut through? What is it about you that's unique? Where do you fit in that cultural landscape? Who is your audience? How do you, how do you reach them? How do you talk to them? Profile them. How do you want them to see you? And you sort of have to get your handle around all of those questions and, and position yourself in such a way that people are compelled to watch you. Whereas I used to be employed all the time because they knew I could do anything. Um, it's sort of changed a little bit now. That's a shame, really. It's yeah, better well, you know, that's... trades and, uh, and great improvisers. You know, you think of people like Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton. and Yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously... I mean, that's a, another ear. Obviously, you also have... The, the people who are personalities yeah. who are who's going to get those late night talk shows and all that kind of thing but those jobs are I mean they're gold they're few and far between you you talked before about the idea of the job that you just nailed yeah. where you're like I had to wait for someone to die for yeah. it no you know, they didn't though they retired oh they retired um, <laughs> so uh, I forgot yes and though those late night hosts etc they seem to come out of a comedy background yeah a comedy background exactly. now. you know that seems to be the way to Get a presenting job. On yeah, TV. they're not old Have... school variety artists like no, they used they're to. comics. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is which is fine. It's I mean, fine. the main thing is: are they engaging? Are they entertaining? Can they can they um, pull together and hold a, a show with a variety format? And you know, as long as they can do all of those things, great. Um, but yeah, the the days of the the talking head and the great reads and the the personalities that are just sort of excellent at hosting all things are, are, are sort of 
I think they're behind us. It's those sorts of personalities that are becoming less and less and less, and we're looking more to people who are sort of, I guess, you know, a little more niche. Certainly in the US where the market's bigger. Yep. I, don't, I, I haven't lived here for 11 years now, so I, I don't pretend to be an expert on what's going on on Australian TV. Good. Tim O'Connell, when he lived in Summer Bay, <laughs> did he suffer much sunburn? <laughs> no, uh, Tim O'Connell was the character that Nick played. For how long in Home and Away? Oh, about a year. Right. Yeah. Okay. Was, he, was that fun doing... Yeah. I mean, I don't want you to shit on a job or anything, but um, soap opera is a specialist form, I suppose. You know what? Quick quick turnaround. You should never shit on shows like Home and Away or Neighbours because they're an amazing apprenticeship. And uh, outside of that, they're also a great gig. I mean, if if you've well and truly done your apprenticeship and you're you're there, um, there's not a whole lot of regular television work that one can get in this country. So I, I I would never shit on either of those shows and for me I was 20 years old when I was cast in that show um, and to suddenly have to do five episode blocks um, where you're learning the script for studio for next week you're rehearsing um, you know what's going to be happening sorry you're, you're doing this studio script for this week you're rehearsing the studio script for next week and you're out on location doing all the OB stuff so you're working on three blocks at any one time you know, it, it became apparent to me why some of these performances look really underdeveloped because it's like they don't get so much the time, time to really get attention. anything from the material. Yeah. So people who do it well, um, I take them, my hat off to them. Um, and for me, it was a great experience and I made some wonderful friends and it opened a lot of doors for me. So um, I I wouldn't be anything but... I'm not anything but grateful for that experience. And both of those shows garner a huge audience. Mm. So there's a lot of people that, that know your face and name. So is that when a lot of the, your acting work then started? After you know your left video hits yeah. into Summer Bay, and, you know, <laughs> then you're doing stage work, Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Yeah, well, I actually left um, Home and Away and went straight into a subscription season of theatre. I did a, a new Australian play called Cliffhanger, which was written by a woman named Marty McConaughey, who ended up going on and being a Home and Away writer after that, which was funny. So her big break was getting her play on stage and then she got a staff writing job on Home and Away, which was funny. And you went the other way. Yeah, and then I did the Australian premiere of Tennessee Williams' last play, Something Cloudy, Something Clear. Oh, that's which a great was, play. Yeah. That, that, that was the one about the sailor on the beach. and. Yeah, I was the the ballet dancer, the right. Canadian draft dodger, Kip Kiernan. So I spent a lot of time in the nude, which was interesting because when we finally saw an original um, print of the book, it says, nowhere should there be nudity in the, these productions. But I think the director was very keen to get us own natural. So right. that happened. Um, um, that, that character was his boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. well, his love interest. That At happened. the time. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's a great play. I must read that again. Where was that done? At in... the Street Theatre in Civic in Canberra. Great. It was actually a very good production. I met Troy Armstrong there. He was our cost, our set designer. Um, Ian Sinclair uh, played Nobby. 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 Uh, and and now I know where he get, gets his nickname because we were we were <laughs> we were rubbing Nobbies. <laughs> we were yeah we were playing lovers. Yeah, he was playing Tom and I was playing Kip. I'm sure that's not where he got his nickname. No, he actually got it from his brother, but that's another story. You can ask him about that when he's Um, a guest on your show. uh, Yes, I I do want to um, talk to Ian Sinclair. (laughs) Um, He's a fantastic director. He is, and a gorgeous, gorgeous man. Yeah, yeah. Um, And a great actor as well. Yeah, he is a really wonderful actor. The Orson Welles of our generation. (laughs) Um, So, And then to me about Priscilla, you know, a long-running musical... Mm -hmm. How do you do a long run like that? That repetition every night does that start to? You know, I'm probably the worst person to ask because I was not conditioned. Um, a lot of the a lot of the fellow cast members that were in that show had done big long runs, um, and it was less traumatic probably for them than it was for me. But um, it was it was an amazing experience. I was very fortunate in that I was involved from the workshops, um, but I was playing Felicia in the workshops and. Uh, and then it came to be that I wasn't going to be cast um, as Felicia in the show. But that must I was be being, disappointing. It was, but they they desperately, desperately wanted me to do the show, and they're like, "We'll we'll feature in the ensemble. We'll give you guaranteed performances as first cover, and all of this kind of stuff." And obviously, the ego didn't take it very well. But it was my first time 
doing a big show like that. And I soon realized that it was a blessing in disguise because it meant that I got to just watch and learn from everybody, use it as a sort of musical musical theater apprenticeship. And um, and just I kept my eye on on um, the young man who who did get cast um, in the role, Daniel Scott, who is no longer with us, um, and just he really did my homework. And then he ended up in a altercation, which resulted in him not being on stage three weeks in to the season. Mm-hmm. And I got a phone call one morning before we'd even really started understudy rehearsals, and I had an hour and a half to get there. And uh, and I was going on, and I. And it, you'd only ever seen about three weeks of performances. Yeah, and no, no, and, and not complete performances, I guess. If you're backstage getting correct, well, or I'm on stage in yeah. the ensemble. So I went on that afternoon and and stayed on for the next three months, and then he came back and did seven performances, and then went out that night and um, broke his foot, and um, was off for another twelve weeks. Um, You're supposed to break a leg, not your foot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. He missed the memo, but um, I have a. I mean, he, he, his his misfortune was was a was a great blessing to me, and I've always been very grateful to him for that. Um, which is, I mean, there's no sort of right or wrong way no, I, no, to, no, to no. sort of say that. Uh, it was just it it gave me incredible um, experience and opportunity, and, and um, sink or swim. Yeah, you do. I mean. I guess you don't know sometimes what you're capable of until you're put into that sort of situation. So it was intense. It was really intense. And, it, and, and you know, it was like I never really had any... I, I became an alternate after that, so I, I did have guaranteed performances every week um, when he came back. But I never really had ownership over the role, even though I'd done more performances. And it sort of created some... It sort of created some weird vibes within the company, not just the cast but you know even the dresses because it put them through great inconvenience every week and right. all that kind of stuff yeah. um, and I started to lose like just the love of going to work it just was and in the meantime I I was you know going through quite a lot of stuff in my personal life um, and there's at this time my parents split up my sister and her husband split up and myself and my girlfriend split up I was sort of having this first um, experience of actually being in love with a man for the first time, which wow. was like very different to the idea of like, oh, what would it be like to, you know, to have an experience? But this was this was like a heart connection like I'd never had before, and so I, my whole sense of identity and it was yeah. I had yeah. anxiety like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. I just I was a shell of a person, sixty five kilograms at this point. Wow, like there was nothing of me. I need to fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was an intense time, but I've managed to to you come out the other end. Come right? out the other end, and I've got gorgeous friends from that experience. Priscilla looked after me, like Priscilla, the show really looked after me when I went to the UK. Um, Back Row ended up sponsoring me to work with them behind the scenes and develop promotion and marketing, um, and this promotional like cast so we we then developed club shows trade show private events where i created a whole second company that didn't compromise the west end cast and we'd take them out we did shows in cyprus and around scotland and ireland and you know private clubs in the uk and parties it was so much fun yeah so i've had a lot to do with the with the show i'm very proud to be a, a part of its sort of original beginnings the first big australian musical to make broadway yeah. Did yeah. you see it in New York? I went to the Broadway opening. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I did. quite an association. I turned up wearing... Did you, did you see what Billy Porter wore to the Oscars yes. this year? Yeah, the tutu. So no. I wore... Yeah. He wore... No, he, he did like... It was a great flowing black. Yes, he... I wore the tutu. So I did oh. like the... I did like the slutty version of what... Of his sort of very elegant... So I had the tuxedo jacket and the bow tie and the tuxedo shirt with black tutu. And fishnets and army boots. Who was sitting next to you either side? I'd be pissed off. <laughs> Chill all over my lap from this bloke <laughs> in the middle. Oh, it was probably Jackie Weave. Actually, no, it wasn't. It was Kirsten Han, who was our stage manager in Sydney, who went on to be an associate producer on it in um, London and New York. Fantastic. How do you learn lines? Every actor has their own system. What yeah, do do? yeah. I 
never remember where I've put my keys or my wallet, but I can read something three times and know it. I don't know why. I don't have any any other great... I, I just... It's some part of my brain that is quite well developed, whereas the rest of it turns to <laughs> shit quite easily. But, um, yeah, I just remember dialogue really, really quickly. And it pisses people off because we'll be on the floor and I'll have it out of my hands after three reads. Well, it pisses me off because it was quite a quick answer to a question I thought was going to go on for a while. Yeah, so you're going to have one. to dig deeper. Do you have a good audition story, an audition that went hideously wrong or... I mean, I've look. I I tend to to take bigger risks now and try and like you know leave blood on the walls. Um, as um, I think it was Les Shintiri who said that to us in in LA when he was out visiting. But I I, t- I try to take bigger risks now, and that means sometimes more spectacular failure in a room. But um, just try not to be beige. And so sometimes that is not the best idea. Sometimes you you know you might be better off just going in and giving them what you think you want but there's so sorry what you think they want um i guess oh god terrible audition stories i mean i've i've gone in i remember going in for chicago and i was like up for for billy flynn in london and going in there and completely forgetting my my lyrics to the song and doing the is everybody here? Oh, it was that was pretty embarrassing. Is everybody is uh, is everybody um... ready? Yeah, yeah, that wasn't great. But nothing, nothing that comes to mind. That um, all right? Another dud question. That was pretty shit. Actually. Yeah, that was, that was no, but that wasn't a dud question. That could have been spectacular. Okay, I just, just I didn't just have said, much I've, good I've material. Dud guest. Yeah. Um, not wow. really. So you le- eleven years ago you left. So that was sort of post Priscilla, I th- from memory. I finished Priscilla of, in Melbourne. Yeah, and then I flew straight to the UK, pretty much. Yeah, you. I was going to say you went to London first, didn't you? Yeah. So uh, Priscilla, but certainly home and away. Was that a good calling card for for the you UK? You know what? I was. Or you went on air then, probably. Oh God, no! I hadn't been on air since nineteen ninety eight or something. Um, I I definitely. Home and Away and Priscilla were both good calling cards. I'd already I'd done the right thing though. I'd been over there in production break. I'd set up an agent. I had jobs lined up. It was all good. What I couldn't foresee was that my agent was going to leave PFD and go and start United Artists with a couple of other agents and leave me behind where there was no one to look after me. And what I also couldn't foresee was that six weeks after I arrived, the global financial crisis would hit and arse would fall out of the universe and there'd be no money for any of the projects I was attached to. And I would have, and nor did I know that I would have put, taken all my money out of Australia, brought it with me and then it turned to shit. So it kind of, yeah, it started out great and then there was an enormous amount of, um, just there's a lot of struggle. It really wasn't easy, but I was just, I wanted to see out my visa at the very least. I wanted to see parts of Europe that I had not seen. I wanted to have an experience. And I wanted to be able to be... I wanted to be the version of me that I was right then, right there, without constantly being around people who I had 20 years of history with and 20 years of assumptions. And 20, You know, I was... I wanted to just reinvent myself yep. a little bit and have the freedom to do that and... And create new friends and new experiences. So it was really, it was a, it was a real struggle. But God, you know, I'm to where I met Amy Maiden and 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 became you know close with Tams and Carol and Simon Burke and a group of uh, people, including uh, Daniel Fletcher. Where we we in response to the terrible fires and floods that were going on in Australia, we put together a big variety night. Um, called Sunday Best, West End Sunday Best. It was on a Sunday night in the Palace Theatre where Priscilla was about to open. And um, we sold out the Palace Theatre with this show wow. that we put together in three weeks. And um, it was amazing. And it solidified a lot of friendships. It also set me on a path of working with um, various Australian organisations in the UK, which I went on to do um, like eight years of... Australian talent showcases in the UK after that. 
Was that the first of your sort of your producing experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't take any producing credit for for that. Real. I mean, I guess I suppose I can insofar as I got you pulled a show together, pulled pulled a show together, and and got the Palace Theatre got Gary McQuinn from Priscilla to, to come on board. But um, Patrick Gracie introduced us to Amy Maiden, and I have to say that you know she she's the one that really spearheaded selling selling the show and sort of she got all of our media sorted i mean she did an incredible job and um we could focus more on just putting the show on um which was extraordinary i mean there were people lining up shaftesbury avenue trying to get a cancellation ticket and we raised we think we raised around 35 to forty thousand pounds for the british red cross australian fire and floods appeal um, Who was on the bill? Were they all Australians or you had some? Yes, well, um, Simon, Tams and Carol, uh, myself and Daniel Michael Fowles on. Um, Lee, they, they weren't all Australian. Lee Mead, who'd just won the Joseph um, Talent Show. Um, Lorna Luft, there was a tenuous link to Peter Allen through there, so we got Lorna Luft on. <laughs> um, we had um, Mark Little, who was famous as Joe Mangle. Um but the big star was Rolf Harris. Really? Mm. Yeah, it was pre, pre-arrest. Well, there's a lot of things that you don't expect. Yeah. There was one. Yep. And, and, he, and he was amazing, by the way. I mean, well, that's, and the that's, crowd went berserk for him. Yeah, that's the... Um, the oh, heart- and Jason Donovan and the cast of Priscilla performed as well. Oh, great. Mm. The heartbreaking thing about Harris, because um, he's someone that we all grew up with, and he's a great yeah. performer and presenter and entertainer and songwriter. And But now, I mean, it, you know, we, I've had many debates and discussions with people about, you know, do we now not listen to any of the music? Um, mm. you know, Picasso... Was a, a mad womanizer. Yeah. People still appreciate his art. Yeah. I'm still hearing Michael Jackson on the radio. Oh, I know. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That's where I live. Yeah, that's where you live now. Yeah. But but what happened? Why why the move from London to LA? So was that? Ooh. It sounds lights, like it big, could be. Yeah, it sounds like it could be Hollywood. very calculated. I just want to. No. No, it was an accident. It sort of wasn't. Well, it was an act of, of. It was an act of the universe. So I am working on Priscilla. Priscilla's closed now on the West End, and so I am sort of redundant um, within the production company. So I'm trying to create. Um, this is not present tense. You're just telling a dramatic story now. The way that, no, know. this is this is this what is happened? at the time in London. So I'm kind of redundant, and the the show's not show's not on, and we're, they're trying to do a licensing deal for touring. And where do I fit into that? And I'm I'm sort of trying to get the club show out, and I'm working on a big concert version of Priscilla to go into Pride House over the Olympics, so I can at least justify having me on staff. And it's you know it's it's a tough time. And then out of the blue, I get a phone call from this agency. Um, who I had hired six years before, completely forgot about, to enter me in the green card lottery. And they've called to say, congratulations, you've just won the green card lottery. Wow. And I'd actually completely forgotten about it. So no, it was not a strategic or calculated move whatsoever. It was divine intervention of some kind. And um, I remember when I got that phone call, um, I thought maybe it was a bit of a scam. So I, I got my case number and I called the Department of State in Kentucky and they said, yes, sir, that is a legitimate case number. And I lost my shit. It was a grim day in Covent Garden and I just started crying. What does this mean? And, um, yeah, I just, it took me a little while to kind of work out what to do. Everyone assumed that I would go to New York because having worked in commercial musical theatre, I wasn't just working on Priscilla. I was also working on Tap Dogs and Swan Lake and working with a really useful group and having a seat at their table and learning so much. The obvious thing to do, if it was about my career, would be to go to New York. But after nearly five years of London's weather, I just wanted to live in the sunshine. And I so I chose LA because I thought it's on the other side of the Pacific, um, so it's closer to get home to Australia. Uh, it's sunny, and I've worked in television for the great deal of my career, so I'm sure I'll be able to come up with something. So you get the green card, but it's yeah. quite a process, isn't it, to then... Yeah, there's a few hoops to jump through, isn't there, before you... Well, I mean, fortunately, when you win the lottery, there's not as many hoops to jump through. I had to get, um, you know, police reports from every, you know, each country I'd lived in, and and then, you know, you have to go and do medicals, and you have to submit certain materials. Finances and... Yeah, 
And so I had to have my property valued and various other things and to sort of demonstrate that I could live for at least two years without any recourse to public funds over there. It really wasn't that hard. Right. It's harder when you're trying to demonstrate that you're an alien of extraordinary ability, right. which is how a lot of people try and get their green cards. Yeah. Um, is it a tough town? Did you LA. find it? Yeah. Did you find it difficult when you arrived? Or was there a, a, quite a <laughs> network of Australians that you could? Uh, There's a stronger network there on. now, and I think that you know myself and and the company that I created had a lot to do with that. But um, when I first got there. There was an organisation called Australians in Film that was that was blossoming, which became a part of straight away. Um, because I had been working with the Australian High Commission in London, they introduced me to the Consulate General in LA and they got me involved in all sorts of things straight away. So straight away I was working on G'day USA and various other things, which was awesome. Um, being a part of that networking community really, really helped me find my feet. Um, but I fell in love with somebody, didn't I, as soon as I got there. And I thought, that's why I'm here. Well, I was here to, to meet you. And uh, and this is what it was all about. And um, I was completely blinded by that and blindsided. Um, so the first year was, do, do, was a you, bit of a tricky one. Do you fall heavily? I mean, do, oh, and, well, not often it would seem. That was only the second time. But uh, is it twice bitten? It's not the second time that I've shy. fallen for somebody, oh, obviously. Right, but, but I've big had, time. Yeah. No, I mean, even, even, even my... My two, I had three significant relationships with women prior to, yep. um, which were all very significant and and deep and very intense. Um, I don't know. Do you fall heavily? I think so. Like I, I, I like I don't. There's a lot of expressions I could use right now that are probably inappropriate. But yeah. But having said that, I haven't been in a relationship for you know three years now. Right. And. Um, I get crushes every day, but it's hard in LA. So you're still open to it? Oh, for sure. Oh, great, great. Yeah. I, I, I worry. LA's a transient place. It's very fractured. It's hard to get momentum. And a lot of people go there because they're pursuing their dreams. And so they're very self-focused. And I can't blame them for any of that. But it does make it difficult to sort of develop and nurture meaningful relationships, um, meaningful romantic relationships. So, um, yeah, it hasn't sort of hasn't sort of worked out. Over the last couple of years, <laughs> it's a um, had a lot a, of fun though. <clears throat> good, it's a uh, huge film industry there, of course. What's the theatre scene like? Well, um, when I got there, um, I, I met up with a lot of people who I knew from theatre who had gone over to Australia, uh, to, who had left Australia and gone to LA to pursue film and television careers. Um, but I knew them from shows that I'd been doing over here and. They were all getting a little frustrated because they, they were auditioning or whatever. They weren't acting, you know, and they weren't keeping sharp and keeping those, those muscles flexed. And they just wanted to do something. And what I was also finding for the first time as an immigrant was that, they, that American audience, Americans thought that we were kind of cute. And they liked our voices and they wanted to hear our stories. Whereas I'd been over in the UK where they would, you know, we certainly weren't cute over there. Right. If anything, you had to start speaking a little bit more like this just so that you weren't looked down upon. You know, it was like, right. it was a real snobbery well, there. system. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and so I came up with the idea of creating um, a theatre company um, to showcase Australian stories, culture and spirit. And around that time, um, I was out seeing, uh, seeing a show when I saw Gia Carides and Angie Milliken in the lobby. Um, and they said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? Angie's doing a reading of Holding the Man at the Coast Playhouse. And I said, what? Um, you know, I've known Tommy Murphy for years. Um, in fact, I met him when I was doing Something Cloudy, Something Clear down in Canberra. He just okay. won his first award as a playwright. He's from Canberra. Um, and I, I wanted to do Holding the Man in London. Not only did I want to do it originally when I got there, but then when David Berthold brought it over, um, I was on board to play the sort of younger male ensemble part until they lost their theatre dates. Theatre dates moved. I, my visa ran out, I had to go back to Australia and, and I missed out on doing it there. So I've had this sort of ongoing thing with that play. It's a brilliant play. And I got sort of fiercely protective. <laughs> so I went along to the reading the next day that um, a guy named Nate Jones was presenting. And 
Ali, um, and sorry, Angie Milliken was in it, uh, Luke O'Sullivan, Adam Yeand, and Rock, uh, no, that's right, that came later. And it, they did a great job. It was, it was really good and it got me excited to think that there was an audience of people in LA listening to an Australian story. So the next day I reached out to Nate and said to him, look, if you're gonna do this, I'd love to be involved, I wanna see this happen. And um, I then told him about my idea about having a, an Australian theatre company. I came up with a, a very catchy name, Atla, Australian Theatre of Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> and he said, why don't we just call it Australian Theatre Company? And I thought, wow, that's ballsy, but sure, why not? No one else has. And so we did. And what, Australian Company of Theatre? Australian company of theatre. <laughs> um, I like Atla. Yeah. Anyway, you've got ACT now. But um, it is, you've, um, you're still involved? I just resigned at the end just of re- January after but five years. Five, I was going to say, you've yeah. seen about five seasons of plays. What sort of repertoire have you done? Uh, right. So the first play was Holding the Man. Then our next summer season, we, we created a, a reading series. Um uh, where we did sort of, we, we called it stage to screen. So we did uh, plays that inspire in in the in the city of of Angels. making. You know, here's some Australian plays that inspired films. So we did like five plays that inspired films, including like Cosy and um, Lantana. Um, not Lantana. It's called Speaking in Tongues. Tongues that inspired Lantana. Um, we did Ruben Guthrie. We did um, Black Rock. Um, I can't remember what else we did. <laughs> we didn't do the boys. We did something else anyway. Then we did. Then we produced Speaking in Tongues and Ruben Guthrie. Um, we did another series of readings. We we've probably put on about twenty one like stage readings, and we've done um, five main stage shows. Um, the last one was um, a smaller show. It was a one person show called Swan Song, but it was a brilliant piece by a, a wonderful Australian actor named Andre Devani. He then went on to present it in New York and won Best Actor in their solo festival over there. Very well deserved. Um, but more than the shows that we put on, um, or the readings, um, you know, I'm proud that we became, we actually became a really relevant international arts organisation. We provided a trajectory for young Australian talent with partner, in partnership with ATYP. We brought their scholarship winners out, um, courtesy of their international ambassadors, Rose Byrne and Rebel Wilson, for three years and showcased them to an American audience. We started an Indigenous Artists Fund and we created an amazing community in the theatre world. And this is a very long way to sort of answer your question, but, you know, there wasn't much of a theatre scene at first from what I could see, but when you, when you start to become a part of it, it's actually really vibrant. It's just that we don't have a theatre district. Right. And so people don't see it. And you know, Los Angeles like is so spread, spread out. out. Yeah. So there's great theatre going on in, you know, East Hollywood. There's great theatre going on in North Hollywood. There's great theatre going on. And a lot of little shopfront theatres too, I Los gather. Angeles has more theatres than any other city in the world. Yeah. And that's something that surprises a lot of people because a lot of them are those little black box or shopfront theatres or theatres that are attached to acting studios. So, um, yeah, that, that was a big surprise to find out. And look, it, it is a little bit of a mess. It would be great if there was a, a sort of theatre precinct um, that encouraged football and encouraged tourism and all of those kinds of things. But we have the Pantages, which is like a touring house, and yep. Hamilton's about to go and sit in that for a year. We have the Centre Theatre Group, which have the T- Mark Taper Forum and um, the Amundsen downtown, and they have... The- the concert halls next door and they have Dorothy Chandler and then they have the Kirk Douglas in Culver City but it's you know um, then it's just a whole bunch of independent theatres all over the place and some of them are tiny some of them are like 32 to 99 seats and what's that little one down near the beach Um, the little playhouse Pasadena playhouse Pasadena is nowhere near the beach 
Oh, it's, isn't it? No. But it's in Los Angeles. It's in Los Angeles. <laughs> the Pasadena Playhouse is the State Theatre of California. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But it's, um, oddly enough, it's in Pasadena, which is in northeast Los oh, Angeles. No, no, in fact, it's not, it's not even in Los Angeles. It's in the county of Los Angeles, but it's, Pasadena is its own city. Right. It's all right. I'm just trying to one-up you. Um, Australian Theatre Company, your audience, were they... A lot of Americans, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Or even though, yeah, which that's great. So yeah, we were able to sort of, I mean, the goal of the company was to create meaningful cultural exchange. So we had American creatives working on Australian works along with Australian and American actors. We also worked with, we, we started a workshop program in partnership with 16th Street, which is a wonderful acting studio here in Australia. And we... Um, uh, Nobby Sinclair runs the Melbourne School. He does. There's a nice little circle there. Yeah. In fact, he started straight after he directed Grey Nomad for us in LA. He went right. back to to Melbourne then and, and started working at 16th Street. But we had the late, great Elizabeth Kemp come and do LA workshops. We've had John Patrick Shanley, arguably one of the greatest living playwrights in the world, uh, write, I think, 16 new short plays for us to workshop in LA and in New York. So we had a great workshop program happening. So we, when I left the company, it was it was a, a kind of sad for me to leave, but I was really proud of where it had gotten to, that it's held in high regard, that there's money in the bank, that we've worked with some of the best people. Um, but it was just time for me to to kind of focus on a couple of the things that I really wanted to do for myself mm. and when you I think you know when you start to work in an organization you you start to realize that you know there's only so much that I can that I can do here or that I can offer or that I can control and it's 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 it becomes difficult mm. um, well another Australian that made their mark quite significantly in Hollywood is Ori Kelly he did. Do you like how I did that? That's that was a, nice a wonderful segue. segue. Yep. Uh, who was Ori Kelly? Ori Kelly was um, a man from Kiama, New South Wales, who went on to be Australia's most successful Oscar winner of all time. Kiama, where recently. the blowhole is. Home of the blowhole. Right. Um, until Catherine Martin got her fourth Oscar. Recently, he was Australia's most successful Oscar winner, but also in costume design. He designed around 285 films and was responsible for some of the most iconic golden age of Hollywood looks. He did Casablanca, Maltese Falcon, Les Girls, American in Paris, Some Like It Hot, Jezebel, 42nd Street, Gypsy. Monroe's Nine. famous dress when she's standing over the blower? Was That's that Seven Year Itch. No. Yeah, no. His famous dress from Marilyn is one that looks like she's literally got oh, her yes. out. It's stunning from yes. Some Like It Hot. In the spotlight yeah. and she's singing. It looks like she's nude. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was... Um, he was, a, he was originally a performer, always a painter and, 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 and designer. His father was a tailor, so he was always making costumes for his puppets and things like that. But he started out as a vaudeville performer, came to Sydney uh, just after World War One, and was you know, doing vaudeville and hanging out with hookers and crooks around Wollamaloo and had an affair with this um, notorious pickpocket and pimp named Gentleman George, who was apparently some sort of bastard child of the King of England as the gossip had it. Um, but he got in a bit too deep and had to escape and, and went to New York and um, moved into this apartment building with George Burns and Gracie Allen and Jack Benny and Gene Austin. And then, uh, you know, started working on Broadway and then off Broadway and just dropped a few too many actresses with his weak little arms and just said, that's it, I'm going to focus on my design career. And then one day this English circus performer named Archie Leach turned up after getting evicted from his hall bedroom across the road. I know who that is. And Ori took him in and he stayed for about five and a half years. And they had a tie business together and a speakeasy together. And Archie worked as an escort up and down the west side with all the society ladies while pursuing oh, his acting career. Like a walker, not a prostitute. Well, he was, he was certainly a walker, right. but... Right. Yeah. We hear, but, you know, we weren't there. Who, I don't know. Who was Archie sure. Leach? I know. Well, I mean, what happened, of course, is that Ori starts designing for big names and gets introduced to a lot of Hollywood people, gets Archie a screen test for Warner Brothers pictures and doesn't get it, but he just, but Archie then knows, I want to go to Hollywood, which he does on the back of doing a tour with uh, Faye Ray called Nikki. He ends up in Hollywood. Ori's there. Archie gets a screen test for Paramount pictures. They think they've found another Gable. They offer him a contract and change his name to Kerry Grant. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
It's a it's a great story, but what's a, but what's tragic too for Aurea, I think, because could Grant left him for Randolph Scott. Well, that's yes, but he didn't just leave him for Randolph Scott. I think that the real tragedy is because at that point, Kerry, yes, he left him for Randolph Scott, and they they're living together. And but the real tragedy is the fact that he, Kerry was owned by the studios, and being even friends with an out gay man like Ori right. was not a good look. Yeah. Whereas Randolph was athletic and butch and all the rest of it, they could get away with it, you know, being these sort of Hollywood actors above reproach. But, you know, by all accounts, Randolph gets moved down the street. Kerry gets married off to a 19-year-old starlet, Virginia Cheryl. Ori is unapologetically Ori, but that leads to his own sadness. And we don't know that he ever really finds love again. I mean, people have speculated about this guy called Bob Roberts and other people, but in Ori's own memoir, he never makes mention of any substantial relationship. And as the mask of Cary Grant takes over Archie, you know, Ori becomes focused on his work, and he's very prolific. I mean, the the costume design Oscar didn't come in to the Academy until 1948, but Ori got there in 1930. And was most prolific in those first sort of... Well, the years predating World War II, he was his most prolific. He would have picked up a ton of other Oscars. But it just didn't exist at that point. Um, So, yeah. And and then, you know, they are sort of estranged. But um, they do work together on Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah, quite a sad ending, didn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know... From all accounts, you know, he, he was a terrible drunk and quite obnoxious and, and not well-liked by a lot of other people, but he was also incredibly witty and gregarious and popular amongst those that did love him. Um, and then, yes, he had liver cancer and died in 1964 at the age of 67. Now, can we talk about why you know so much about Ori Kelly? <laughs> um, well, I saw I saw Gillian Armstrong's documentary and I was immediately compelled. It's based on his memoir, Women I've Undressed. And I'd been looking for an Australian-American story that fit with sort of where I'd been culturally, like with Australian Theatre Company, to create a show for myself that um, I could also tour and bring back to Oz. And when I saw this, I just thought, well, this is the story. I also have to thank John Iacovelli, our scenic designer, in case he ever hears this, for um, telling me I had to watch the documentary. So I immediately called his um, estate's reps and um, said, I- I'd really love to adapt this. And Brilliant. so, yeah, so I've taken on the book and I've written the show uh, with Wayne Harrison, who's one of Australia's greatest directing talents. Yeah. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to have him. And then my consulting producers are people like Jackie Weaver and Cody Lassen, who's an amazing Broadway producer. Um, and the show was invited to launch Celebration Theatre's Celebrating New Works program in West Hollywood recently. So we did a stage reading of it, went quite so well. So there's um, music involved as well, song? Yeah, there is. It's yeah. published music. It's all, it's old, you know, it's of the time. Yeah. There, will, there is some original scoring and all that kind of stuff. But I also really do believe there's a bigger show in it. Um, it's just, having been involved also in the development of other big shows in the past I know what a huge Herculean effort it is to, to create a new musical and I thought that this is a great way for me to tell his story yep. um, and um, and sort of have a bit of like actually be something that I could achieve within my skill set and my means and my resources and my network but I do believe that there is a bigger show here um, so hopefully it's just the first step I hope so yeah I'm sure there are a lot of Peter Allen shows around before Boy From Oz. Well, that's right. Yeah. And it's not it's not dissimilar in the way that in the way that Ori narrates this this show. Um, it's it, it probably hopefully will one day sit alongside it alongside something like that quite comfortably. There's an amazing cast of characters in Ori's life. I mean, he was Bette Davis's personal costumier for eleven years, um, but he dressed every major star um you know he he's one of the only people you'll ever hear saying you know negative things about marilyn monroe yeah she's he'd say things like you know she's an exhibitionist she's always late her mood varies from you know not so nice to downright nasty and i can't be blamed if her you know if tony curtis's ass looks better in a frock than hers 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just really did not like her at all. And it's quite delicious to be able to say those words in, you know. Well, I guess some of those stars were so precious and, and the, the studios just pampered to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, poor Marilyn, I mean, to be fair to her, I mean, she was pregnant. She was secretly pregnant at the time. Did I just do something? No, no, that's good. No. Um, Marilyn was secretly pregnant at the time and she was involved in all sorts of things that, um, you know, probably would have affected her mood. But, um, you know, you're right. They were very pampered. There's a whole spiel that I had to take out of the show about exactly that, you know, about and about the, the culture of sycophants in Hollywood as well, yeah. which hasn't changed enormously. It's still, well, it's, it's <laughs> part of the industry, isn't it? Yeah. Part of the industry. Um no, you're going to watch Game of Thrones? We we give it a go. <laughs> Is that your way of inviting me to stay while you put on the next step? No, no, oh, no, no, good, no, no. Because no, I'm busy. I was, I was just coming full circle of the interview to sort of try and wrap it up. Oh right, that's, that's fine. That wasn't had... very tenuous, kind of. I think that was a bit tenuous, but that's fine. I don't know. Look, I should give it a go. Well, my friend Peter, his his husband Jeremy, is the director of it, and I think out of respect, I should probably absolutely do that for Jeremy. Well, you went and watched Ori Kelly for a scenic designer. I think you could watch. Oh, okay. So now it's I'm yeah, going to watch it because you're thoroughly recommending that I do. No, no, your friend's husband, Jeremy. Yeah, Peter. Peter's friend. Peter's Jeremy. friend, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, sorry about that, folks. Sorry uh, about that. Thanks for coming in and, and chatting. It's been fantastic. Has it really? Yeah, I, that, I've had a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. I hope people have stayed tuned and I didn't bore them terribly. Have you had fun? Oh, of course, I always have fun with you, oh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's so much rock. I was thinking, I don't have to edit anything out of this interview. Yeah, you do. I might have to go through with fun too. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Mr. Ayers. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka and Spotify. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.